had conversations with Peter already uh, around the breakfast table or on some of our uh, excursions and the like. Um, Peter is the author of a number of different books. Um, the two books that have come out just recently, um, yeah, oh, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Uh, now, I, I, I wasn't uh, really aware of Peter's work uh, until fairly recently, but my Ward suggested that I look at this book, and so I ordered it, um, it came in, and I opened it up, and I began to read it, and, and I realized, wow, this fellow really has a knack for communication. Um, what a great author, a pleasure to read. Um, and, and then I found out that he just came out with another book called The Faithful Guide to Philosophy. So if you're interested in sort of an introduction to philosophy, a nice survey that interacts with a lot of things that are live right now online, because a lot of people are interacting with the ideas on the internet. Uh, this is an excellent guide, just packed full of resources. Um, Peter is a philosopher and an apologist. He works for a group called uh, the Damaris Trust, Damaris Trust. Now you feel like you're about to pronounce that. Um, <clears throat> And uh, uh, he has a repertoire that's, that's quite, quite broad. My first introduction uh, to Peter's work was actually watching a YouTube video of a debate in which he participated. Um, he was a debate partner with William Lane Craig. So many of you probably know William Craig's work. He's like the world's most famous Christian debater uh, at the moment. And uh, Peter teamed up with him at uh, Cambridge University. Uh, taking on some, some atheists there, and perhaps Peter will reflect on that a bit uh, this morning. Well, enough said. Would you please welcome Peter? Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a real pleasure to uh, have been with you uh, the week up until now. Today's the last day I can be with you because I've got to go to London uh, tomorrow uh, for a trustees meeting of the Christian Evidences Society. Um, so today is it, um, but I've really enjoyed having breakfast with you and chatting with you and walking around Oxford with you. Um, let me just uh, note to you the address of my website at the top there. Um, that is the hub to go to to get access to my podcast channel, some of my papers, uh, my Twitter feed, all of that sort of stuff. It's uh, a work in development, um, so more stuff should be going up onto the website soon, um, but that's the hub to, to go to there. Uh, it was an article in Wired magazine that uh, coined the phrase, the new atheism, uh, the publishing phenomena after particularly after and sparked by, really, 9-11, um, when people like Sam Harris and then Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, uh, Christopher Hitchens, A.C. Grayling, Lawrence Krauss, etc., uh, started publishing books that were not only critiquing the, the rationality of belief in God, but also the social utility of belief in God. Uh, Gary Wolfe, in his article in Wired magazine, put it this way. He says, the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong in an intellectual sense, it's evil. It's bad for you, it's bad for society, and we need to fight against religion in the sense of trying to get people to give up their religious beliefs in order that we have a better, 
uh, more rational society. Um, so there is a sort of uh, 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 social dimension and agenda, uh, very much a sort of moral uh, crusade in a sense uh, that the new atheists feel themselves uh, to be engaged in. And interestingly, Oxford uh, is the academic powerhouse of the new atheist movement. Um, so let me just mention a few associations here. Peter Atkins, a uh, British new atheist chemist, is a fellow and professor of chemistry at Lincoln College, Oxford. Richard Dawkins studied zoology at Balliol College and is an emeritus fellow of New College, where we were the other day. Daniel Dennett, although an American philosopher, received his DPhil from Hertford College, Hertford College under uh, the British philosopher Gilbert Ryle. Professor A.C. Grayling, who is a, a British New Atheist philosopher, received his DPhil from C.S. Lewis's old college, Magdalen, under the supervision of P.F. Strawson and A.J. Eyre. And he remains a fellow at St. Anne's College. Christopher Hitchens graduated from Balliol College, Oxford, uh, where he obtained a third in PPE. Uh, among leading English-speaking, there are a few um, uh, continental new atheists as well, but amongst English-speaking new atheists, only the American neuroscience Sam Harris and the American physicist Victor Stenger didn't study their doctoral studies at Oxford. And indeed, Stenger has held two visiting positions on faculty here. So Oxford really is the academic hub of the new atheism. And you can also see by the fact that, linking back to, well, who did these people do their doctorates with here at Oxford, you start mentioning names like Strawson and A.J. Eyre and Gilbert Ryle, who would all have been colleagues of C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis indeed started out at Oxford University teaching in the philosophy department, particularly teaching moral philosophy, um, whilst uh, a professor was on a, uh, a sabbatical or going over and visiting another college. And um, then even when he started as a, an English lecturer, it was on the condition that he would also take philosophy tutorials uh, with people for a number of years. And when he started as an English lecturer, he actually had more philosophy tutees than English tutees. Um, so... Uh, as well as that, of course, Lewis was then the president of the Oxford um, Socratic Club, uh, which was a, uh, a debating forum for debates between Christians and non-Christians. And at that Socratic Club, Lewis would have engaged with people like A.J. Eyre, for example. So today's New Atheists are only one intellectual generation down the road from C.S. Lewis and Lewis rubbed shoulders with the people whose thought is still being very influential in being promulgated through those new atheist writers. And in my book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, what I do there is really look at uh, what form did Lewis's atheism take when he was an atheist and see what similarities there were between his atheism and the new atheism, particularly in terms of how he viewed uh, as an atheist, he, Lewis viewed religion as, as psychologically oppressive and bad for society and so on. He had that in common with them. But also some of the differences that um, Lewis had even as an atheist from what today's new atheists say and why those differences made Lewis 
take philosophical arguments for God seriously, uh, whereas today's new atheists by no way, shape or form take such arguments seriously at all and they are seriously misinformed and uninformed about the contemporary debates in the philosophy of religion because they simply don't take that area of study seriously at all here's a little video we can all understand how a man begins a against himself you tread on my toes I forgive you you steal my money I forgive you but what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden upon who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. This is Lewis. A fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. C.S. Lewis, who should have known better, I know not how many of my publications you have read, Professor Dawkins, but I think you'll misconstrue the nature of this trilemma. Let's take another look and make sure we've left no stone unturned. Lewis, who's argued so well up till then, can't complete a syllogism. Poor guy. That's precisely the problem with faith, believing in something for which there isn't any evidence. All gone for it. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted, in spite of your changing rules. I'm sure nobody's explained that to you already. There is no good reason to believe in God. But there must come to the very existence of reason itself, and whether that may constitute what you call evidence. That's the, uh, the longest of three little YouTube videos that um, my friend Peter Byron made to uh, advertise the book. And uh, there are some themes there in the conversation that we've made up uh, between Lewis and New Atheists using quotes from New Atheists um, that we'll pick up on in this talk. Um, we may not get through all of this material in the time. We shall see. If we don't, that's only an added incentive to uh, pay me a tenner. Uh, for a copy of the book, isn't it? So that's all to the good. Um, I'm going to suggest that there are at least um, four self-contradictions within what the New Atheist movement generally communicates uh, that Lewis in particular would be keen uh, to pick up on and point out. Uh, That they have a self-contradictory view of uh, faith and knowledge, a self-contradictory view of freedom and responsibility, particularly when that comes to thinking about intellectual responsibilities. Well, they have a self-contradictory view of ethics and a self-contradictory view of Jesus. Let's start with looking at faith and knowledge briefly. 
scientism. Now, John Lennox talked a little bit about scientism yesterday, and this is probably where there'll be the most overlap between our talks. Um, Science is great, but scientism is something to be wary of. Scientism attributes exclusive, or perhaps near-exclusive, primary, um, rights over determining what counts as knowledge to empirical or scientific methods of verification. Um, Lewis uh, says this, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. On this view, when we say that the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas, if we say that men ought to have a living wage... We're not, uh, we're describing only our, our own subjective feelings. And he observed that on this scientific view that, that, that establishes this distinction between facts and values, the world of facts without one trace of value and the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, Uh, confront one another and no reproachment, no friendship between them uh, is possible. You see from the the lectures we've had earlier in the the week, some of us, how this ties into Lewis's thinking about reason and imagination and how he says at one stage that when he was an atheist, everything that he thought real, he felt was meaningless and everything that gave him a sense of excitement and joy and so on he thought uh, to be purely um, subjective. Uh, And in discovering uh, Christianity, Lewis felt that he found a way to to, uh, strip out that false dichotomy uh, between fact and value that is set up by a scientific view of things. Uh, Victor Stenger, a new atheist physicist, complains that critics accuse new atheism of scientism, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They cannot quote a single new atheist who has said that. Okay. So Stenger is aware that new atheists are, are, are portrayed as being scientistic and that this is a point of complaint against them, and he repudiates the charge. Well, let me give you a series of quotations first of all, without telling you where they're from, Um, but think about the the viewpoint of the person who said these things. Uh, They say that science does not require, nor does it use, any metaphysics. So when you do science, you're not using, you're not relying upon any philosophical ideas about things. They also say that science is belief in the presence of supportive evidence. That's what science is. It's having evidence-based belief. While faith, on the other hand, by contrast, is belief in the absence of supporting evidence. That's the definition of faith. Now, would you think that someone who thinks that science is belief with evidence, that faith is belief without evidence, and that science doesn't rely upon any metaphysics, is someone who holds a 
scientific view of how we know things. These are all quotes from Victor Stenger in his book, The New Atheism, taking a stand for science and reason. Um, So although he repudiates the charge of being scientific, um, he himself clearly enunciates a scientific view of knowledge. Peter Atkins, in his book on being, says the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of requiring uh, reliable knowledge. According to Richard Dawkins, beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, you've got proper, evidence-based belief, and on the other hand, you basically have blind faith. And I'm not going to go through this whole of this long quote, but you can see that basically he says by the end that ultimately our knowledge of things always comes back to our senses, whether extended through scientific instruments like a telescope or a microscope, or extended even further by making a scientific model that predicts things that we can detect with our senses, either directly or indirectly, but it always comes back to having empirical data. That's how we know things. On the other hand, there's blind faith. Faith is believing in something where there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. So here again, typical of the New Atheist movement to treat faith as synonymous with blind faith, as if blind were a redundant qualifier in that phrase, and it simply isn't. It simply isn't. As Lewis said in the video, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once uh, accepted in spite of your changing moods. And I love um, this quote from Lewis about the nature of faith and reason. He says, Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. Don't we all? But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. (laughs) What a lovely turn of phrase. It says, when we exhort people to faith as a virtue, to the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things, we are not exhorting them to fight against reason. He says, if we wish to be rational... Not now and then, but but constantly rational. We must pray for the gift of faith. That is, for the power to go on believing, not in the teeth of reason, but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and indifference. That which reason, authority, experience, or all three, have once delivered to us as truth. Yes, that uh, is a good representation of the historic Christian understanding of faith and its relationship with reason. Lewis would also note that Dawkins et al. have far too narrow an understanding of knowledge 
It's kind of the book of knowledge, you know. Um, two approaches to this issue of scientism um, to deconstruct it. Um, let's do the harder one first, and then I'll do the easier one. We'll do it in that order. So the, the scientific demand that every rational belief must be justified by evidence. If you're going to say, this is something I know, this is something I rationally believe, that has to be because you have some evidence for it. Yeah, That's what they're saying. Well, that demand itself doesn't live up to its own standard. And thus it's self-contradictory. It's like sitting on a branch and then sawing it off behind you. Uh, Not a good idea. Indeed, that demand that every rational belief must be justified by evidence that supports it and shows it to be rational, entails an infinite regress. You can see that. If, if I have, um, here's a, a belief, A. Should I believe it? Well, I shouldn't believe it, according to an atheist, unless I have some evidence that supports it. Call that evidence that seems to support A, B. Okay. So I've got B, this, this evidence that seems to support A. But should I believe B? Should I believe that it really is relevant evidence that really does support A? And that this evidence really does exist? Uh, and that I've got reliable access to it? And so on. Well, I shouldn't believe any of those things unless I've got evidence for my belief. Otherwise, I can't claim to rationally believe them. So we need C. Um, and D and E and F. And I, you know, I'm going to be outside soon. Um, just making the problem worse and worse. Digging myself deeper and deeper into an infinitely bottomless pit of scepticism. If we are actually to rationally know anything, there must be some things that we know without having evidence for them. Things that we argue from without having to argue for. Because it is literally impossible for us to argue for everything. Now the easier way of seeing it. This, this demand that, that only empirical scientific type knowledge count as rational knowledge is open to obvious counterexamples. Here's my favourite, rainbows are beautiful. I'll leave that one for you to think about a little whilst I move on to the story of Aunt Matilda and how much arsenic I need to put in her pot of tea at breakfast in order to stand a good percentage chance of inheriting her uh, country palace, uh, be it Blenheim or another one, um, by lunchtime. How much arsenic do I need to put in there? Science will do an excellent job at telling me the, the answer to that question. Is that a good thing to do or not? Science will not answer that question. Science will do a good job at describing my behaviour, physically speaking, but it will do a rubbish job at prescribing what my behaviour ought or ought not to do. Do you, on that ground, stick to your scientific guns and say that, therefore, you can't know that poisoning Aunt Matilda with arsenic for selfish gain is a bad thing to do? Or do you say, look, it's just obviously true that poisoning Aunt Matilda for selfish gain is something I ought not to do. And if a scientific definition of how we know things can't accommodate that obvious fact, then so much the worse 
for the scientific definition of knowledge. More fundamentally, of course, in order to do science, you do need to rely on certain metaphysical assumptions, contrary to Stenger, and including assumptions about how logic works so that you can argue rationally when you're doing science. But, of course, science, therefore, can't be used to justify your knowledge of how to argue rationally, because then you'd be arguing in a circle and begging the question. You just need to see that if Socrates is a man and if all men are mortal, then Socrates is mortal, and that any argument with a similar logical structure is a logically valid argument before you can go off doing science. You therefore can't go off and do science to prove how you ought to go about arguing for anything. Here's another quotation without an attribution. Let's look at it a little bit and then I'll give you the attribution. This author gets it. He says, intuition the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. And similarly, Lewis, I think, would say the same thing. He would say, imagination, use that term, is part and parcel of rationality. That the modern understanding of rationality has become very narrow and constricted. But intuition uh, is the most basic constituency of our faculty of understanding. That's true in matters of ethics. It's no less true in science, says this author. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. Any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. The reliance on intuition should be no more discomforting for the ethicist than it has been for the physicist, says new atheist author Sam Harris in The End of Faith. Um, so new atheists are not always wrong, um, just perhaps that um, sometimes they might get their theory of knowledge more right when they're just thinking about how we know things than when they're trying to use it as a stick to beat religious people over the head with. Uh, indeed, in his book, The Moral Landscape, remember back to the example of poisoning Aunt Matilda, um, Sam Harris... Um, stands out from the the new atheist crowd by wanting to believe in objective moral values. Um, I agree with him on that. It's good to believe in objective moral values. But he says science can cope with telling us what's right and wrong. And even most new atheists think that he's wrong about this. And indeed, Sam Harris thinks he's wrong about this, if only he thought about it a bit more. Because in his book... Uh, the moral landscape, claiming to show how science can subsume objective ethics, he says this. Science cannot tell us why, scientifically, we should value human well-being. What he actually argues is, given that we think human well-being is an objectively valuable thing, science is really helpful at measuring things that tell us about what does and doesn't contribute to human flourishing, and therefore science um, can tell us about morality. But, yeah, but even if you grant that, only on the assumption that he's made here, that he admits he cannot justify with science. So he explicitly contradicts his own uh, theory of moral knowledge there, 
when he tries to subsume it under science. Um, so I think moral knowledge is an example, a counterexample to a scientific uh, view of how we know things. To re- uh, retain his belief in objective moral values, um, uh, Harris should give up on trying to say that science can tell us about morals. As Lewis said, you cannot produce rational intuition by argumentation because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable, which just has to be seen. You just have to have a rational intuition that you trust, that you put your faith in. So the idea of opposing faith and reason is precisely the opposite of what needs to be the case. You can't reason without faith in that non-blind but nevertheless non-scientistic sense of knowing. G.K. Chesterton, fantastic photo of him here. Um, of course, was very influential upon Lewis. Uh, do, you know, do you know the story about Chesterton's um, telegraph to his wife once? He was, he was on a train journey, and uh, he sent a telegraph to his wife. He must have got engrossed in thought on something, you know. Um, and the telegraph went to this effect, it, something like, um, I'm in Margate, stop. Where should I be? Stop. <laughs> like, just got so caught up in things. Fantastic. <laughs> I, uh, I'm sure the wife saw the funny side later. <laughs> um, Chesterton says this, let us clearly realise this fact that we believe a number of things which are part of our existence but which cannot be demonstrated. All sane men believe firmly and unalterably in a certain number of things which are unproved and unprovable. For example, every sane man believes that the world around him and the people in it are real and not his own delusion or a dream. None of you believe that you really are like Keanu Reeves plugged into the Matrix. We might admit that that's a possibility, but raising that possibility is not enough to undermine our confidence in the fact that we are all actually real people in a real room together, and not uh, that you are the last human left alive plugged into some nefarious computer sending you false neural uh, messages into your brain to make it appear to you like you're in this room. But there is, of course, no uh, empirical uh, method of adjudicating that debate because any empirical data that you got could itself be information being fed to you by the computers. Or Bertrand Russell um, once mentioned this thought experiment. How do we know that the world is older than five minutes old? Well, you might be tempted to say, well, that's easy empirically, things like, I don't know, starlight travelling, or let's cut a tree open and see the rings in it for the years that it's grown. And, well, hang on a minute, how do you know that it wasn't the fact that five minutes ago God created a universe, including light partway between the stars and the earth, and rings in trees from seasons that never happened, and food in your stomach from a breakfast that you did not have this morning... <laughs> How empirically could you tell the difference between those two worlds? You can't. Because the the data would be identical in either case. By hypothesis. And yet, don't we all rationally hold the belief that the universe is older than five minutes old? 
that we that is something that we all rationally believe, and indeed you have to rationally believe in order to do science, <laughs> but which you cannot know empirically. So as an atheist, as an atheist, Lewis rejected scientism, and he said this uh, distinction uh, between uh, facts and value and so on will not bear the weight we are attempting to put on it. And this allowed Lewis to take philosophical arguments for God seriously, to take metaphysics seriously, um, and engage with philosophical arguments for God in a way that the new atheists don't, because they kind of have this, well, that's not proper how you go about knowing things, um, therefore we don't need to take it seriously. We're only interested in what science can tell us about reality, because that's the only thing that can tell us anything reliable about reality. And they are, of course, just plain plumb wrong about that. Freedom and responsibility, particularly the concept of libertarian free will, the, the kind of free will that, say, Immanuel Kant would argue uh, is necessary for moral responsibility. Um, Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about God creating things with free will, creatures which can either go right or wrong. Uh, he says, the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them, but the, the moral law tells you what human beings ought to do and not do. It doesn't describe what they do do, it prescribes what they ought to do, but which they might fail to do, and which you can hold them morally responsible for failing to do in a way that you can't hold the stone morally responsible for falling. If the stone, you know, if the apple falls off the tree onto your head, Isaac Newton, um, you cannot blame the apple. It is the cause of the pain in your head, but it is not a blameworthy cause. If I'm in the tree above you and I'm holding the apple and I drop it on you, well, I am both the cause of your pain but I am surely morally blameworthy. And the difference is this, that I'm a moral agent with free will. I had a choice about whether or not to drop the, the apple on your head. The apple didn't have a choice about whether it obeyed the law of nature. So here's, a, uh, I think, the key kind of naturalistic argument against free will. And many new atheists will say, no, we don't have free will. Think of it like this. Premise one, purely physical systems behave according to the laws of physics, and so lack libertarian free will. That just seems true by definition. Premise two, human beings are purely physical systems. That premise must be true if a naturalistic worldview is true. From those two premises, you can deduce the conclusion, therefore, human beings lack libertarian free will. And given you think that that's a precondition of moral responsibility, also that they lack moral responsibility. That's a logically valid argument in that the conclusion really does follow from the premises. The key question is, are the premises both true? I would take issue with premise two. Um, here's Richard Dawkins talking about free will. He says, human brains, though they might not work the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. And for him, there is no difference between your mind and your brain. You just are your brain. And it's governed by the laws of physics. When a computer malfunctions, says Dawkins, we do not punish it. We track down the problem and we fix it. Isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component. 
and he lists various types of component of the human machine, be that internal or external environment, etc. But it's all physical components of the physical system. So he says, doesn't a mechanistic view of the nervous system of a person make a nonsense the very idea of responsibility? Any crime is in principle to be blamed, not on the criminal, but to be blamed on antecedent physical conditions acting through the, the physiology, heredity, environment, physical bits of the system of which the accused is a, a cog in the big machine, as it were. Why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers, asks Dawkins, when we should... Note the inclusion of this interesting term here, when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing. Now, in one sense, you've got to give kudos to the guy for for trying to consistently work out the consequences of his worldview and having the courage of his convictions to go there in order to be consistent. Um, But perhaps uh, having the right view of morality in humans is uh, something that uh, we prefer to hold on to and would make us question. You see how he's really working through exactly the same argument there, uh, just in a more prose form, and that actually we might be driven by thinking about this to turn the argument around, such that we say that... um, Okay, look, um, purely physical systems behaving according to the laws of physics would lack free will and moral responsibility. People have moral responsibility and free will. So people can't be nothing but purely physical systems. That is also a logically valid argument. The question is, um, are the premises more plausibly believable than their denial? Um, You have to weigh these things up. So here's a question I think Lewis might like to pose to the new atheists. If everything about a person is governed by the laws of physics, blaming them for their intellectual failings, like, you religious people, you shouldn't have blind faith, that's bad, you know, that makes about as much sense as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. So how can anyone, for example, Christians, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? Obvious answer, they can't. And that is a bit of a problem with the new atheist critique, moral critique of uh, religious belief. Um, Quite apart from the fact that they misunderstand what it is to have faith in the first place. How indeed, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview, such as the new atheist view of things, if that worldview denies any reality to intellectual obligations? You're kind of saying, um, for the following rational reasons, you ought to change your mind and stop being religious and come and be a new atheist. Um, That is your intellectual responsibility, given the information and the powerful arguments that we are giving you. And, oh, by the way, you don't have any intellectual responsibilities. No, sorry, can't square that circle. (laughs) As the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel observes in uh, The Last Word, if we can reason, it's because our thoughts can obey the order of logical relations among propositions. Lewis, uh, miracles, the... Uh, the primary uh, problem 
of the naturalistic system in terms of rationality that he raises uh, there, where Lewis um, talks about saying, when we, th- when we say things like, you know, I believe X because of Y, and he makes a distinction, philosophers love distinctions, between two different senses of the word because that we might use here. Uh, the relation of physical cause and effect, as in, grandfather is ill today because cause and effect he ate lobster yesterday and it was off or the relation of logical ground and consequent as in grandfather must be ill because ground consequent he hasn't got up yet and we know that he is invariably an early riser unless he is ill grandpa's failure to get out of bed doesn't cause us to conclude that he's ill. Rather, it is our logical grounds for making the logical inference to the conclusion that he is ill. But Lewis says this, if what we think at the end of our reasoning is to be a valid conclusion, the correct answer to the question, why do you think this, must begin with the ground consequent because blah. On the other hand, every event in nature must be connected with previous events in the cause and effect relation. Remember Richard Dawkins, he admits this, saying it's blamed on antecedent conditions in the physical system. But, says Lewis, if naturalism is true, our acts of thinking just are events in nature. Therefore, the true answer, if naturalism is true, to why do you think this, including why do you think naturalism is true, is, of course, something that begins with the cause and effect sense of because. Because I'm caused to believe this by the way the physical system happens to have gone. But, says Lewis, surely this is a bit of a problem, because to be caused is not to be grounded. Wishful thinking prejudices, the delusions of madness. They're all caused, but they're ungrounded. There's a difference between having a physical cause and being a rational conclusion deducible from the premises at hand. You might say this, that um, you could summarise Lewis's kind of approach to the rationality of naturalism by saying this, One, naturalism reduces what reasoning is to a closed, mechanistic, deterministic system of physical causes and effect. Chucking in a bit of quantum randomness there won't help because randomly choosing a conclusion isn't rationally doing it either. Um, Two, this reduction cannot accommodate acts of reasoning as acts of reasoning, including, of course, the naturalist's own acts of reasoning. Therefore, naturalism is self-contradictory and reason must be viewed as a fundamental cause rather than something that is caused by the material universe. It is much more rational to say in the beginning was the word, the logos, than in the beginning was matter and then later somehow mind capable of reasoning just appears. In 2011, the American philosopher Paul Copan uh, was at a book tour event where Richard Dawkins was speaking, and Paul Copan asked Dawkins this question about rationality. 
We say in River Out of Eden that we're dancing to our DNA. It seems hard to differentiate between the, the arguments of the atheist who believes himself more rational than the theist, when actually the same non-rational, physical, genetic forces are at work in both. So that even if the atheist is correct, it seems to me it would be completely by accident rather than by virtue of, of rationality that the atheist has. So, so I was curious as to what you'd say in response to that summary. If the same forces are at work in both the atheist and the theist, why would we consider the atheist to be more rational? Here is a transcript of Dawkins' response. Um, I'm not quite sure that I've got this. I mean, the same forces are, are shaping both the atheist and the theist, and indeed everybody, uh, yet we come to different conclusions. Um, is your problem, how is it that we come to different conclusions if our brains are shaped by the same forces? Um, no, that was not the question. Um, so Copan tries to, to clarify again. Uh, my question is, why should the atheist believe he is more rational than the theist if the same forces are at work in both of them, that is, forces beyond both of their control? Dawkins, you could ask the same question about any difference of opinion. Yes. What's the answer? <laughs> yeah, that is an irrelevant observation. Um, and then Dawkins changes the topic. He says, if you were to ask me a different question, it's a typical kind of politician's answer. If you were to ask me why I am confident that my scientific rationalism is, um, is, uh, is and I think he was going to say, rational. <laughs> but he says, is, uh, is the right answer. I mean, the answer is that it works. And then he makes the comment, and religion makes people fly airplanes into buildings and science sends men to the moon. Big cheer from the audience, round of applause. Um, yeah, it's an interesting exchange, but it shows that Dawkins clearly hasn't thought about this issue before. And actually, it's one of the key issues in the contemporary debate between naturalism and theism. It's an issue raised by people, as we mentioned, like Alvin Plantinga, Victor Reppert's excellent little book, um, Victor Reppert's book, C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea, very readable, uh, modern uh, Christian philosopher uh, teasing out various different strands of argument from Lewis's argument against naturalism and giving a, a good contemporary defense of it. And Dawkins is just ignorant uh, of, the, of the issue there. And as Copan says, along the lines with, with Plantinger, the problem with the but-it-works response is that there is a difference between what works to aid survival and something being true, because lies can work very well. You know, survival value is not the same thing as being aimed at the truth. Self-contradictory view of ethics, we've touched on ethics a little bit when we talk, look, talked about freedom as a prerequisite for, for moral responsibility. But more directly, despite constant moralising against the evils of religion and so on, people like Dawkins et al., their, their scientism, on the whole, leads them to reject the objective reality of moral values. And I've said Sam Harris is an exception to that rule. 
I don't think he manages to sustain his objection given his worldview assumptions, but at least he is an honourable exception to that rule. But, but um, for example, Dawkins says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, i.e. no God, no creator. There is no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. There's just the, the wheels of the, the universal clockwork kind of grinding on, and if you happen to get your finger trapped in the mechanism, it'll hurt. Stuff happens. Dawkins says there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between, and here he falls into real, you know, early 20th century A.J. Eyre-esque logical positivism uh, for those of you who know about these things he says, there's a distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do normative or moral ideas for which the word is true and false have no meaning Just absorb that for a, for a moment there, there are facts we know through science Science doesn't tell us about moral ideas. Moral claims are not true or false, saying it's true that torturing small children for fun is wrong. Well, it's not that that claim is wrong. It's not that it's true. It's just it's meaningless. Moral ideas have no meaning. So in the God delusion, when Dawkins says things like Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men, it's hard to perhaps call to mind when you're reading Dawkins condemning such evils, in which you want to go, yes, that's wrong, I agree, that actually he should also be whispering in your other ear, and by the way, there are no standards. And when he says faith is an evil, precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument, not only does he misunderstand the nature of faith, but he should be whispering in your other ear. And by the way, nothing is evil. Faith is evil and nothing is evil. And I find that a rather hard square to turn into a circle. You can't reconcile that contradiction. So really, people like Dawkins... Um, accepting Harris, they, they say, we have this objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion is an objectively bad thing. Um, and it, it encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations by having blind faith. And if you get into that frame of mind, you'll then easy pray for being radicalized and being convinced that if you strap a bomb to yourself and go and blow up a lot of innocent people, uh, Allah will let you into heaven and give you how many dozen virgins it is or whatever, because you're having beliefs that you haven't thought about. That's the kind of rhetoric. Um, but by the way, also, number two, there are no objective moral values. And they're giving with one hand and taking away with the other at the same time. But for Lewis, as an atheist, having lived through the horrors of trench warfare in World War I, having lost his mother to cancer, having been to um, uh, private schools where the headmaster was basically insane and used to beat the children, for Lewis, as an atheist, evil was an objective fact of his experience. He said, evil is a real thing, a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. 
Several years before I read Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument, surely the strongest of all for atheism, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. The, the problem of evil. Um, but of course, the problem of evil relies upon you thinking that there is evil. And significantly, you will only come across the problem of evil advanced as an argument against religious belief by Sam Harris. You will not really come across it in other New Atheist works, as far as I can tell. So Lewis says, if nature, this space-time matter system, is, is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our moral standards. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. That's just how I happen to have been caused to feel about things. But that feeling does not reflect accurately or inaccurately any moral fact of the matter. If there is no straight line elsewhere, says Lewis, how did we discover that nature's line is crooked? When he started reflecting on the reality of evil, he saw that it started pointing towards a supernatural reality that he couldn't accommodate, he couldn't give a home to within the metaphysics of his atheistic worldview. If metaphysical naturalism is true, then nothing is objectively evil. And Richard Dawkins explicitly agrees with that. But add this premise, something is objectively evil. Conclusion, therefore metaphysical naturalism is false. Indeed, extend it um, where, what kind of worldview would give a, a comfortable metaphysical home to the existence of such a thing as an objective moral value that, that transcends us and our decisions, is binding upon us whatever we feel or think about it or decide about it, that prescribes our behaviour, doesn't describe it, prescribes, it has a sense of intentionality about it, and to which we are rightfully feel ourselves to be obligated. What kind of reality can hold a moral idea that it prescribes intentionally to us and obligates us to follow? Um, a chunk of matter, obviously. Some sort of, I don't know, chemical or the law of nature. or No, obviously not. We're obviously talking in terms of something that is at home only within the context of talking about personhood. But as H.P. Owen argued, on the one hand, the realm of objective moral values transcends all finite persons. That's why it's objective. And yet you can only make sense of, of the moral dimension of an objective moral values in terms of something personal. It transcends persons because it's objective, but it's personal because it's moral. Oh, that's beginning to sound quite a, like, a lot like a big chunk of what we mean by God. So if a wholly good personal God doesn't exist, if some transcendent personal standard doesn't exist, then objective moral values don't exist, but objective moral values do exist. Look, that is evil. Therefore, a wholly good personal God exists. So Lewis's grappling with the reality of evil kind of boomerangs upon him, and he says, and consequently, atheism is too simple. This doesn't completely answer the problem of evil, because, of course, the moral argument doesn't tell you anything about God's extent of God's knowledge or power. 
you could say you could still want to say, uh, well, okay, there's a wholly good personal God who obligates my behaviour, but he's not powerful enough to get rid of evil, and that's why there's evil. So, you know, it doesn't get you the whole Christian concept of God, the whole biblical idea of God, but it sinks atheism and naturalism, and it starts you down the road, along with other arguments that start piecing together the kind of photo fit picture of the God of the Bible. Finally, a little uh, fun here, a bit more uh, light-hearted, but nonetheless about a serious issue, of course, the New Atheist self-contradictory view of Jesus. And this famous quote from Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he's got to this stage of, of, of uh, we're working on the assumption that Jesus made certain claims about himself, and Lewis is trying to debunk people who want to say, Um, that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, even though they accept that these claims were made. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. And by that colourful phrase, he means... Uh, not just a liar, but a blaspheming liar who is uh, deliberately trying to con people in his society about a matter that is key and core importance to them. So it's a serious matter, the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse, a blaspheming liar. You can shut him up for a fool. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, you see. So the way Lewis phrases it here, and of course he finds this argument in the works of Chesterton as well, and it's an argument with a very long history in the church, Um, He's not really phrasing it as an argument for the divinity of of Jesus, but as an argument against a certain viewpoint on Jesus whereby he's not divinity. Um, But particularly as then taken up by people like Josh McDowell from America, uh, who I think coined the phrase of talking about this as a trilemma, uh, it's very easy to see how this applies into an argument. Given that Jesus claimed divinity, both implicitly and explicitly, Either his claim was true or it was false. If it was true, well then he's Lord. If it was false, we have another couple of of explanatory possibilities, at least. He either believed that claim sincerely or he didn't believe it sincerely. If he believed it but it's false, then he's a lunatic. If he didn't believe it and it was false, then he's a blaspheming liar. As Peter Kreeft says... um, the gap between your, your, your reality and your self-image is a good measure of your sanity. Okay? So if I come to you and I, say, and I say, look, I'm a pretty ordinary, normal, run-of-the-mill bloke. I'm probably about as evil as most people in the room. You're going to say, yeah, okay, <laughs> I can live with that claim. You know, I'm a sinner. I'm a redeemed sinner, hallelujah. But yeah. If I come to you and say, I'm the most moral person in this room and probably the best philosopher here as well. And you think I really sincerely mean this. You think I'm a bit of a prig, a bit stuck up, a bit full of myself. If I say, um, well, I am, I'm sinless. 
I'm sinless, and uh, come the judgment day, I'll be sitting on God's judgment throne judging you. And um, whether or not you end up in eternity uh, with God um, depends on how you react to me. (laughs) Then you're calling for the men in white coats, aren't you? Because there is an even bigger gap between my reality and my self-image. Unless it's true, (laughs) of course. So, we have this uh, trilemma argument. How do the new atheists respond? Um, Well, some of them, like Victor Stenger, would do all sorts of things to call into question the data by which we would establish that Jesus even made those claims, of course. But that's kind of, that's an issue prior to the actual argument. But here's, uh, so I can't go into all of those issues. Um, Go to my podcast channel, my books, etc. My book, Understanding Jesus. Uh, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, which looks at the arguments for for Christian understanding of Jesus and so on. Um, Stenger, here's a typical passage of a new atheist writing about the the evidence from the New Testament. And he says, there there is not a single piece of independent historical evidence for the existence of Jesus um, or the veracity of events described in the New Testament. Even the much-touted statement, the statement, uh, by the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus is now accepted by almost all scholars as a forgery, and the, the paragraph in Antiquities that mentions Christ, his uh, works, his death on the cross and appearance three days later, does not appear in the earliest copies of that work, and not until the 4th century. Sounds like a devastating critique of the information we have about Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, every single truth claim that Stenger makes in that paragraph is demonstrably flat-out false. Demonstrably fed out false. Um, the only one you might give is that, yes, the, the earliest quote, and we have a quotation of that passage that mentions Jesus earlier than we have whole manuscripts of, of the Josephus work, and that earliest quotation appears as a quotation in the 4th century. But that is the first passage from Antiquities that exists in the 4th century as a quotation, and it's that one. When you get any manuscripts of Josephus himself, which are later than the 4th century, that passage is in all of them. Stenger subtly implies that it doesn't exist in the earliest manuscripts, and then it suddenly appears suspiciously in the manuscript tradition later. Wrong. There's another passage in Josephus that mentions the death of the, the martyrdom of James, the brother of the Christ. So there's not one, but two passages in Josephus. Etc. 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 He's wrong about everything. They just don't know what they're talking about. So, getting back to the the Lewis Lyre uh, uh, trilemma, uh, journalist Fanny Keefe asks Richard Dawkins, "When you read some of C.S. Lewis's work, why do you think someone of his, who's a scholar, is grabbed by faith? How can a scholar be grabbed by faith? I mean, even that this is a question that just seems normal to ask in our culture tells you a lot about our social um, condition." Dawkins says, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. He was, after all, a professor of English. No doubt a very good one. Uh, Let's dollop a bit of condescension that's only a half-truth on top of Lewis. Uh, First, typical New Atheist rhetoric. Then we get to a response. But but you read some of his arguments, and they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. It didn't seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Uh, Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. 
The Godly says a fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. No, sometimes I, I think that I've left the keys in my jacket pocket, um, but actually they're on the shelf. Uh, sometimes I think the butter is in the fridge, but it's out on the side. Sometimes first century Palestinian Jews go around thinking that they're, they're divine and going to sit on God's judgment throne. You know, they're just honestly mistaken about things. It's not that they're mad or... <laughs> See how ludicrous a response that is. To say, okay, for the sake of art, he claimed divinity, that claim was false, he really believed it. That's a huge gap between your reality and your self-image. But he wasn't a lunatic, he was just honestly mistaken. That's Dawkins' response to this pathetic argument. It's a backhanded compliment to the strength of the argument, isn't it? Stephen Davis hits the nail on the head. He says, it is not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. Okay? Nicky Gumbel, who initiated the, the Alpha course here in the UK, lovely um, response. He says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. <laughs> what a fantastic uh, response that really highlights, uh, really highlights the, the problem with that. Mike King, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But here's the question, why should Dawkins and Al not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Those do seem to be genuine possibilities, at least. Quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates those possibilities to be untenable. And indeed, Dawkins says, for example, in a recent interview, there's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. So he recognises that there's a problem with plumping for that explanatory category. Um, So let's cross out honestly mistaken. That was just laugh-worthy. Dawkins himself sees that there's at least uh, problematical to put him in the lunatic category. Um, But Dawkins doesn't think that Jesus was a deceiving lie. See, Dawkins thinks that Jesus was a great human moral teacher. He says that Jesus was a great moral teacher. The moral superiority of Jesus, he talks about in The God Delusion. He says, Jesus is one of the great ethical inventors. The Sermon on the Mount is way ahead of its time. Turn the other cheek, anticipated Gandhi and Martin Luther King by 2,000 years. It was not for nothing that I wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus and was later delighted to be presented with a t-shirt bearing the legend. He describes Jesus as a charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness and talks about praising his genuinely original and radical ethics. So, doesn't seem very plausible to put Jesus in the blaspheming conman liar kind of category either. But to the extent that you think the lunatic and liar explanatory options are implausible, so to that extent you think it's implausible to say that Jesus' claims were false, and to that extent becomes more plausible to see them as true. 
I wouldn't use this argument as like a knockdown argument for the divinity of Jesus. It is, of course, based on fallible historical data, and it depends upon making judgment calls about the plausibility of certain ways of understanding Jesus vis-à-vis that historical data. But I do at least think it's an argument that is, uh, uh, sort of puts a, a stone in the shoe of the non-believer, uh, as it were, uh, that should get you intrigued about who this Jesus guy was, should make you open to exploring more evidence, that is a good, strong part of a cumulative argument uh, for the Christian understanding of Christ. Um, Dawkins, of course, doesn't want to go there. He sees the problem with those two categories and that forces him to try and invent another one, which every audience that I have presented it to, those quotes, have just laughed in the face of that alternative. So it's a good backhanded compliment to the strength of the argument, I think. There we go. That's the end of my presented uh, remarks, my prepared remarks, and hopefully we have time left for some Q&A. Could I ask you a question um, from an atheist point of view? Which yeah. I'm sure you could provide clarity. So, um, the atheist says that um, you, know, you as Christians claim we don't have moral values, but we can create the morals we need to run a society Mm. through objective measurements of what most effectively preserves our species. And we do it consciously and subconsciously. Yeah. Okay. So, if all they mean by ethics and morality there is explicitly there being defined in terms of a pragmatic what is useful for obtaining certain ends, they're sort of saying... If you value this end, then we can do a good job of showing you what the best method of obtaining that end is. Such that if you value the end, you will be motivated to to value this way of going about doing things. But that is not a moral discussion yet. Because there's that if there. When we come to saying, like Sam Harris saying... Science cannot scientifically justify that you should value human flourishing or the continuation of the human species or whatever. That is a question left hanging, and that's the ethical question. Is there an objective value to human life and existence and flourishing and so on, such that we morally obligatory sense, morally, should value those ends and should be motivated to try and pursue the best means to obtain those ends and so on. Those are moral questions and they are just left to one side by that that way of framing it. So I would simply say they're not talking about morality yet. When they talk about morality that's when things start getting interesting. And it is key, I've, I've just very briefly presented the kind of moral argument for God there. And new atheists will time and time again misportray, mischaracterize the moral argument as saying, if you don't believe in God, or if you don't believe in the Bible, you can't know the difference between right and wrong. Or, if you don't believe in God, you can't be a good person by 
ordinary standards. That is not what the moral argument claims. That is not the New Testament position. St. Paul in Romans explicitly says, you know, the Gentiles who don't have the law can be a law unto themselves through their consciences, which sometimes condemn them, but sometimes say, yes, they know they did the right thing. He says, people who don't believe in God and don't have scripture can know the difference between right and wrong. They might, they might be, you know, yes, they might be more confused, but they can know the difference between right and wrong, and they can do the right thing. The moral argument is not after those issues, really. It's after the issue of, is there such a thing as an objective moral value? And what is the best metaphysical account of the world that fits in the existence of such a thing? Um, And that is where the moral argument says atheism doesn't give a metaphysical home for such a thing. Um, Now, there are... Interesting, this, this. This is how sometimes I, I sometimes present and defend the moral argument by only quoting from atheists. Um, I love that to do that because then I'm not quoting from people that say, oh, they're biased. Of course, that Christian philosopher would say there's moral values. They would say it implies God. There's a bit of scepticism there. But if you know, I'm quoting from an atheist philosopher here. There are some atheist philosophers who do an excellent job of defending the existence of objective moral values that are knowable. Um, really good book called Whatever Happened to Good and Evil by a British philosopher called Russ Schaefer Landau. Does an excellent job of arguing against relativism and subjectivism. There really are objective moral values. But then he has a chapter at the end of the book where he's concerned to, to try and say, and some people will say, that the existence of such values implies a God, and here's why I don't think that's the case. And I don't think he does very well there. Uh, and I published an article, you can find it on the Be Thinking, uh, the UCCF Be Thinking website, I think, that looks at uh, the moral argument and Russ Schaefer Landau's interaction with it, if you want to pursue that. Um, on the other hand, there are atheist philosophers like J.L. Mackey, Oxford philosopher from previous generation. He wrote a famous book on ethics called Ethics Inventing Right and Wrong. And in that book, uh, Mackey says, if there were objective moral values, I think that the, the best account of reality that would fit those things in would be a theistic account of reality. Um, for various reasons, and you know, we mentioned a little bit about because only a personal reality can obligate, can prescribe, can contain an ideal, etc. We're talking in personal terms, but transcendent, you know, that whole discussion. But Mackey for his own reason, says, yeah, I think the best account of the world, given objective moral values, is a theistic one. But he's an atheist. So what does he do with that? He says, so, since there isn't a God, that means that there aren't any objective moral values, and ethics must be completely subjective. It's all about inventing right and wrong. You see. So I think Russ Schaefer-Landau, atheist moral philosopher, is right to defend the objectivity of moral values and wrong to say that they have nothing to do with implying the existence of God. I think J.L. Mackey, atheist philosopher, is right to say objective moral values imply God, but wrong to say that there aren't any such values. If both philosophers are half wrong (laughs) in the right way, then they are both fundamentally wrong about their worldview you see. Uh, it's that move that the moral argument is making, not about moral motivations or, you know, can atheists be nice people or, or anything like this? And don't let atheists 
get you off track by kind of coming back and sort of going, good grief, how dare you say that I, I don't know that it's good to love my children and that I'm not a good person, sort of thing. Well, you know, as far as this argument goes, I'm not making those claims. Here's the argument again. Keep them on track. Yeah. Uh, there's a hand at the back, and then I'll come to the front if I may. Yeah. Back home in South Dakota, we've got billboards all over the state now. If you don't believe in God, join the Age of Reason. Mm-hmm. They've got, got camps, join the club. they got yeah. a website. They're getting volunteers to do good for people that mm. are more moral than the Christian churches. Mm. And they're evangelizing like crazy nowadays. They're becoming very proactive. Mm. Trying to recruit young people to believe in nothing. Why? If there's no God, why are they even so concerned about it? Yeah. Have you seen the Common Core curriculum of what they teach about the origination of matter? No, no. Is that at all? I don't know. I don't know anything about the, the latter issue, but and we, we had like the, the, the British Humanist Association bus bus poster campaign over here, where we had um, bus posters saying, "There's probably no God now. Relax and enjoy your life." Uh, and no idea what the connection between those two things is meant to be. It gives me perhaps an insight to the atheist mindset. But no, I'm sure, I'm sure you know, there are lots of atheists who, who sincerely feel that um, religion is bad for people, that it encourages blind faith and being anti-rational and anti-science and so on, and that clearly there are lots of examples of religious people doing terrible things. That's true. Uh, and they want to have a sense of community, as well, that church gives you, but they don't believe in that thing, so they don't want to be hypocritical, etc., by, you know, pretending to go along with the crowd. Um, they want to be honest about what they feel and so on, but they want to do good in the world, and you can, you know, th- there's lots, in a sense, to, to affirm and praise about that. If atheists are getting together to say, we need to be more proactive in actually doing good for other people, um, and not just saying, how dare you say we, we're, not, we're not good people, we're not nice. We're, what, maybe we ought to give as much percentage of our GDP as Christians do to charity or whatever, you know. Well, there's a sense in which that's a good thing. Um, maybe the approach to take is, um, hey, let's our church and your humanist association get together to go and feed the homeless. Um, you know, feeding the homeless is not the, the preserve of, of Christians, we are, of course, called um, to look after those less fortunate than ourselves by Christ and so on. But atheists want to do it. Great. That's, you know, that's good for the world. But that's, that actually kind of clears away this whole misconception that, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of us versus them. We, we don't like you. You don't like us. We think you're evil. You think we're evil. Um, let's take an opportunity to actually establish some relationships and get to know people, do some good together break down those misconceptions and actually focus on the which your worldview or my worldview actually give you the better metaphysical foundations for doing this and having the motivation to keep on doing it when it gets tough and so on here's how my relationship with Jesus inspires me to do this what inspires you to do it you know <laughs> yeah we had a question down the front two questions one real quick one mm. uh, that quote of Lewis on faith Mm. Is that in your book? Uh, yes, it'll be in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that come from? Which one? Uh, where did that come from? Uh, it's from some of his essays. Okay, well, yeah. I've got it. I've got it in the in the um, in the. Is it in Mikrochani as well? 
I got it from one of his essays. So, okay, give me another question, and I'll keep on uh, well, looking down here. The other question is when you when you interface with some of these new agents, mm. how how do they look? You know, if you look at what Frederick Nietzsche said in the Madman, mm. you know Frederick Nietzsche obviously, I think, was came from the same cut of cloth from some of these new agents. Uh, mm. You know he he really despised Judaism, and as a result of that, came some of his conclusion, which though they may be wrong, hmm. he did at least see where we were going. Yeah. He describes exactly where we are today and the direction we're heading. So do they ever take that into consideration that if you take God out of the equation? Hmm. So yeah, Frederick Nietzsche, I think, yeah, he's one of those a bit like Dawkins working through in that quote about child murderers. He, he consistently works through what are the implications of giving up on belief in God. He says all the, all the things we've built upon that foundation have to go as well. And I think Nietzsche clearly expressed how getting rid of God, getting rid of the, the standard, would leave us with moral nihilism, with, with no standards. You know, Look at the, the, the speech of the madman in Also Spake Zarathustra. Where is God? We're burying God. We've killed God. What can we do now to wash ourselves clean of, of, of this act? Um, these churches are now the sepulchres of God. Um, but this news has come too soon, and people will find out the consequences of this practically down the road. Um, and if you look at the rest of the 20th century, you might well say that, uh, in a sense, he was prophetically right about that. Um, of course, uh, Nietzsche um, did um, break off a, a friendship, I believe, with, with Richard Wagner, who was anti-Semitic over that issue. So I'm not sure how directly anti-Semitic Nietzsche uh, was, but it was his Nietzsche's sister who, after his his madness and his death, took uh, his works and publicised his philosophical works to people like Hitler and Mussolini, who then uh, at least appealed to his work sometimes in justifying their political viewpoints. Um, but I don't think you can automatically assume that that Nietzsche would have been yes, right on, guys. You know, um, he might well have, have thought that they were sort of twist, twisting some of his his points in order to, to justify their, their own ends. And it's funny, reading Nietzsche, sometimes I get the sense, is, is he really pushing forward this, this, this no-God viewpoint? Or is he, is he fearful of it and warning about it? Uh, he kind of feels himself in two minds. He's almost in some places groping towards, if we get rid of God, we end up in postmodernism. A complete nihilism, a complete lack of, you know, language will have no meaning. Um, why should we pay attention to truth without God? All of these ramifications and warning about it and saying we have to come to terms with living in such a world. It's just that he puts the emphasis on, we, okay, let's come to terms with, well, how are we going to live in such a world? Rather than that driving him back into the, into the arms of God, which I, I think is the far more um, rational... A response to, to make to the situation. Yeah. But the, but they don't, again, the new agents, did they not even take this into account that 
No, well, they, they think just as a matter of, you know, ethics, it's, it's, it is this pragmatic thing, but we can, we, we know that we all want to flourish and we don't like pain and we like pleasure and we can have a sort of consequentialist kind of outlook on things and we can establish some rules and, okay, we can't, we can't give a metaphysical backing to those rules, but um, you know, it's a very interesting interview with Richard Dawkins actually on this who says, you know, even though I'm a Darwinist, I am not a social Darwinist. I think a socially Darwinian politics or um, society would be terrible to live and I wouldn't want to live in that kind of society. If someone broke into my house and stole stuff from me, I would find it difficult to argue against them on a moral level, on a metaphysical level. What I would say to such a person is, you can't get away with that in this society, I'm calling the police. So on the one hand, he says, I don't want to transfer the law of the jungle to to politics or society, I I don't like that. He can't say that's wrong, he says, I don't like that. I couldn't give a, a philosophical argument against the thief, but kind of say what? I can appeal to the law of the jungle. The police are stronger than you are. So I don't want to appeal to the law of the jungle, but when it comes down to it, what I'm going to appeal to is the law of the jungle. (laughs) So he he doesn't manage to extract himself um, from the the poverty of the resources of the worldview that he's trying to bring to the problem. Yeah. Um, so with the science, for those who claim to be driven by scientific rationality, it's so clear that it's really not the case mm. that the unprovable proof mm. is the syllogism. I mean, it's the, it's the law of non-contradiction. Yeah. And, and if you can drag the discussion and the attention back to the basics as you did, as mm. you went through mm. there, then that does become evident. Yeah. But that's the hard part, getting, it, yeah. getting clarity in the discussion. Um, that's that's really so helpful. Yeah. Um, have you thought, just kind of completely going outside of all that, you know, Bonhoeffer wrote in his essay after 10 years about folly. Mm-hmm. And the Bible, you know, says that folly is not an educational deficiency. It's, it's not something that you lack facts or... Mm-hmm. It's about wisdom. It's, it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And the, and, the, and the blindness of folly. I mean, I just... Just do you reflect? How would you reflect on that? I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not suggesting yeah. that we come into an argument because they're being illogical and contradicting themselves everywhere. Just say, "Well, here's a discussion ender. It's folly. Turn off the light. Yeah. Everybody leave the hall." Yeah. But it is an it is a yeah. big issue, isn't it? There's a blindness out there. Yeah, I think there's there's, there's a job in in equipping people with the tools to be able to assess such arguments to be able to cut through rhetoric and tell the difference between a rhetorical move and an actual substantial argument and what are the elements of that argument and so on and uh, interesting enough one of the main things that, that I do on, on, on staff with the Damaris Trust is run a lot of their schools work where I go into schools and I supervise a couple of conferences that we have one of which is a conference where I go into a school I take 120 16, 17-year-old students for a morning. In an hour and a half, I teach them how syllogisms work, what the rules are. I give them a little bit of information about this problem of regress, where do we start arguing from, talk a little bit about basic beliefs and so on. Then I get them split up into groups according to what do they think about the existence of God 
do they want to argue for atheism? Do they want to argue for theism? Do they want to argue for soft agnosticism, hard agnosticism, into the four corners of the hall? Spend half an hour in your groups working out the best argument you can think of using the rules of syllogistic logic for your viewpoint. The educational benefit of this is that everybody in the room, practically, whatever position they think they want to argue for, discovers that it's a lot harder to actually produce an argument for their opinion than it is to just hold their opinion and express it. Um, But hopefully they've enjoyed learning about the tools. It's a transferable academic skill that they say is useful for for everything. So it's not too bad that we spent a morning doing RE because we weren't just colouring in pictures of sheep and Jesus. Um, (laughs) I wasn't bashing them over the head with the Bible. I wasn't saying, you've got to believe what I believe. I was saying, hi, I'm a Christian. Let me teach you about logic. Let me give you an opportunity to think more deeply about what you think and want to argue and defend to your peers. Go on, you do it. Here's some, here's some feedback. Here's a box of chocolates for the group that did the best argument. This, this week it was the soft agnostics had the by-the-mark scheme because they had uh, one logically valid syllogistic argument and another logically valid syllogistic argument that was two overlapping syllogisms. Um, I've got some questions about the premises of their argument, but I'm not marking those. Well done. That's, that's, that's all I do. But that shatters so many preconceptions about Christians, Christians' relationship to rationality and education, Christians and tolerance and openness and discussion and so on, and gets them thinking, gosh, maybe I need to think a bit harder about this, but now I've got the tools to do it and to assess. And we start off the conference looking at the difference between... Um, the sort of rhetoric used in adverts to convince you to part with your money to buy hair colouring or this car or whatever, you know, and an actual argument. Um, and, and so we see it at the Demarest Trust as, as part of the sort of church's service as salt light in the society to go out there, and this is a very, very sort of indirect form of evangelism, because we don't go in there and say, you know, here's the gospel and here's an altar call, you know. That, that wouldn't be... Um, Um, the right thing to do under the educational circumstances and and so on Um, but as Nick Pollard the founder of the Damaris Trust says if you want people to think about Jesus first of all you've got to get people to think (laughs) so that's a good first step you know Um, so yeah yeah. Uh, if you were first yeah one thing I really appreciate about C.S. Lewis is that he was honest when he was an atheist. Mm. And he did not like uh, the ultimate view of atheism. Yeah. It was very dark and he didn't like yeah. it. And he said his imagination wanted to believe. Mm. Yeah. So in talking with atheists, you know, um, a few times I've talked with them when the matter of what is the purpose of life, mm. you know, you're, you're not here, you're here, you're not here. Mm. You know, and there's, there's no imagination to it, there's no joy in it. Mm. <laughs> so when, what would Dawkins say is uh, mm. the purpose of human life? Yeah, he would say, they would generally say, of course there is no purpose to life, but don't let that depress you, because you can all have your individual subjective purposes, and he says things like, my purpose in life that I've decided to pursue is science 
and the natural world is wonderful and beautiful and intricate and really inspires me and gives me a sense of almost sort of awe and worship only there isn't anyone to be in awe of or to, to worship or to thank for it. But I get those same sort of feelings, which I'm sure are the same as religious feelings. Uh, and so my life feels um, pretty much the same as yours, I bet. And um, that's fine. And, um, you know, don't, don't worry too much about the, the nihilistic, objectively speaking, consequences of, a, of my worldview. So here's a sort of, he sort of goes an existentialist kind of route and says, yes, every, everything's, everything's going, to, to, going to nowhere in a handbasket, but put on a happy face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, have you ever seen that film Ants? Um, the DreamWorks animation about the ant colony, and Woody Allen plays this neurotic ant, of course. You know, when you come from a family of, of 5,000 brothers, you just don't get any attention. I mean, how is it possible? He kind of goes, you know, sorry about my terrible uh, accent there. Um, I just realise what group of people I'm doing this impression in front of. You know. um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, the, the whole sort of everything I do is for the colony, and what about me? What about my needs? It, the whole thing it just makes me feel so insignificant he says to his ant therapist. And the ant therapist says, well done, you've made a real breakthrough. I have? Yes, you are insignificant. (laughs) (laughs) And then little ant Woody Allen goes off to work, gets his pickups going out to the mines to work, and he's he's sort of going to say, okay, okay, I'm insignificant, but with attitude. Oh, and that's kind of where Richard Dawkins goes, really. Um, he, he, um, whereas Nietzsche, Nietzsche goes much more down the, the doom and gloom. Like, there's no, we're, we're cut loose from this earth. We've got no standards. There's no up or down anymore. Um, you know, uh, how are we going to cope with that? He seems a bit more worried by it. And, yeah, I think my, my sympathies in that, those terms are much more with the, the sort of Nietzschean uh, approach than, than Dawkins. But... Uh, yeah. So there was, uh, yeah. I was wondering if you comment on uh, the new atheism as a movement. Would you see it as getting mm. momentum or losing it? Is it being replaced by something? Ah, yeah, good question. So um, there was this first wave of publishing, and it became a publishing phenomena, uh, and they made headlines and interviews and TV programs and films and lots of stuff on the internet, and they established some community feeling amongst atheists kind of coming out of the closet where they, they felt sort of a minority and sort of not look, looked on very well in certain places and so on and gave them a sense of identity and a sort of moral crusade to give your life a sense of meaning and purpose. Let's, get, you know, let's stand up for truth and rationality and justice and all of this. Um, and you have this first wave of publishing and then you have a sort of second wave of publishing that's kind of like Stenger's uh, book that I quoted from. That's a response to critiques of them and um, A.C. Grayling recently brought out a book called The God Argument where he, he spends some time looking at the arguments for God and then half the book looking at a sort of a humanistic worldview and that's, we need to give some sort of positive characterization to being an atheist as well as a negative one. And, um, there's a sort of law of dwindling returns there. Once you've made the big splash, you've sort of established the community and so on, then you can, you can keep on publishing a few things and responses and having some debates and so on. But the big, the big kind of seems to be over. Um, you're getting then perhaps new figures rising to more prominence, particularly since, think about you know, Christopher Hitchens died 
And since then, Lawrence Krauss, in particular, has become more to the fore and doing lots of tours, did a film with Richard Dawkins, did debates recently with Bill Craig in Australia and, and so on. Um, but I think there's a bit of a law of diminishing returns there. And interestingly, there's been something of a... You know, they always were the kind of atheists that, that made other atheists pull their hair out, like Michael Ruth we mentioned the other day, saying on the cover of McGrath's book, you know, Dawkins makes me ashamed to be an atheist, and Alistair McGrath shows why, and so on. And they had a heated exchange of letters and, and so on. Um, but then there's more, been more recently, there's been what's sometimes been dubbed the new new atheist movement, where atheist writers like um, the British philosopher Alain de Botton uh, published a book called uh, Religion for Atheists, where he said, of course there's no God, and we, you know, atheists agree that, and religious people are wrong about that, but their religious forms of life and of community and things seems to have a lot going for it that atheists could learn from usefully. Um, there was uh, established what has been called in the papers an atheist church in the country that has meetings where they have, you know, a talk and some music and a sing-song and and so on, get together and meet each other, have a cup of tea and things. And, you know, in a sense, you know, all those community and stuff, that, that's good, a little talk, but they, they, they just they don't bring religion into it. They have a little talk about the wonders of nature and have, sing a you know, song about how wonderful the galaxy is or, um, you know, and so on, have a bit of community. So they're sort of saying... It's not this sort of new atheist, not only is religion intellectually mistaken, but religion poisons everything, as Christopher Hitchens says. Let's get rid of everything to do with religion. Let's throw it all out. There's now some atheists kind of saying, well, that's kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe there are some good things about religion, and we could perhaps see if we can kind of rescue those good things out of religion and put it, put it into the proper worldview, but still have them. Uh, as a kind of backlash against this very aggressive, let's kick religion out of the public square and everything about it is terrible kind of view, which they see as, as far too sort of broad brush stroke, stroke uh, and is far too broad brush stroke. So that's been a sort of interesting little sort of counter movement within atheism it, it, itself as well. So, you know, I'm not going to prophesy, but not being a prophet as to where these things go, but that's interesting to observe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Last question. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, in, like in eighth, ninth grade general science, one of the first things that we learn is that science cannot make truth claims and it cannot prove something, but it can only support or mm. not a certain hypothesis. Mm. So, are these new atheists taken serious by real practicing scientists in the claims that they're making? Yeah, I, I hope, um, perhaps I've, I've misportrayed them as, because their rhetoric is so uh, confident and sort of overwhelming, you might get the idea that the, the truth claims they make are phrased in very dogmatic terms as well. And that's not actually the case. So, for example, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion says, I cannot prove that there's no God. I just think the evidence is overwhelmingly against the hypothesis. If you had a sort of sliding scale from um, you know, pretty convinced theist to pretty convinced uh, with a sort of 50-50 in the middle, you know, I mean, maybe I'm kind of up here. But I'm not claiming that I can disprove God, um, but I think I can show by arguments that it's overwhelmingly unlikely that there's a God. 
So he will explicitly say things like that, and that does fit more with the, the kind of the scientific kind of approach. But they are rhetorically, they're, you know, they're, they're the kind of atheist who will say, you know, evolution is a fact. It's a fact as hard as the fact that the, uh, you know, gravity or that the Earth goes around the sun or whatever. When I think even a lot of atheists <laughs> would say, well, you know, okay, one is a direct observational fact in process science that we can study in the lab here and now and measure and so on. Another is a historical inference in, in origin of science that we are convinced is true, but it is not. <laughs> you know, um, no, one, no one goes around saying, look, look, um, the theory of gravity is a fact. It's as established as the theory of evolution is. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Why don't we get the comparison in one direction but not, but not the other? And, and, uh, yeah, I think... So they, they, they do have this rhetorical tendency to, to make overblown claims about things um, to, to ram their, their point home. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you.